G'day everyone, welcome to another episode of Conversations with Code 9. I'm your host Tiffany Cook and today I'm sharing an episode that I recorded for my own podcast, Roll With The Punches, with someone who is a perfect conversation for you guys to have a little earwig on. So here it is, I'm speaking to Glenn Weir. Glenn's the Assistant Commissioner of Road Policing Command at Victoria Police and he has proudly been married to the service for over four decades. Now, in this time, you can imagine Glenn has seen some heavy stuff from road trauma to the loss of far too many fellow officers. So we talk about the literal and the metaphoric armour that comes with sliding on that uniform and badge for the day and how Glenn has navigated the good and potentially the bad of policing. Absolutely love the chat. Absolutely love Glenn and absolutely love to hear your feedback. So make sure you let us know. Glenn, we are welcome to roll with the punches. Tiffany, it's great to be with you. What an opportunity. I tell you what, I was excited when when you tuned in and you were all suited up. Now, how am I supposed to address you now that you're in your uniform? Well, you can call me a range of things, but let's just stick with Glenn. <laughs> I reckon Glenn will do the, Glenn will do the job, I reckon. <laughs> so, just like, so normally I'm, so I'm the Assistant Commissioner for Road Policing with Victoria Police. Yep. So I look after... Um, everything to do with um, safety on the roads across the state of Victoria. Um, and, you know, it's predominantly keeping people safe. That's it. We want people to enjoy the roads and enjoy all that Victoria has to, to offer, but do it in a safe manner. It's a job that's um, pretty full on. Um, it amazes me some of the strange things people do on the roads, um, but there's a real tangible um benefit that you get from keeping people safe because you see the flip side when there's trauma and it's really confronting and um, 41 years of doing this uh, gig and um, it doesn't get any easier um, every time you deal with someone who's lost their life or been seriously injured. Oh, now, I first spoke to, you'll be familiar with this lad, Peter Bellion. Yeah. Um, I've had him on a couple of times. I remember first speaking to him uh, probably a year ago now. And what I love about, you know, getting you guys, people like you on a show like this to speak to people like me <laughs> is just the the world that you open up in terms of understanding. Like I just, I'm really passionate about speaking to first responders and police officers and opening up my eyes but also the eyes of everybody else to understand what you guys actually and I won't say do but what you are in the middle of in order to do the jobs that you do and Mm. we look at I think I looked at road policing very differently after speaking to Peter Bellion and hearing a what he'd seen but understanding the stats behind the work that you guys do so thank you no worries. Look, it's a pleasure. And any time I get to speak to anyone, <clears throat> I find it really useful for me because one thing I've learned in this is you really need to reflect on what you do every day because it's the old thing about fish don't know they're in water. So, like, you're, you're, you're operating in this environment, but unless you take the time to sort of step out and go and, and have a look in from the outside of what you're doing yourself, you can be really drawn into that mire of, of really harmful behaviour. And I know Peter, you know, who was at our major collision unit for a long time, um, you know, he's been one of the champions of sort of recognising 
um, the impact it has on people. And, and I've done a whole range of roles over 41 years and had some really great experiences generally, but some horrible ones. Um, and, and you just really need that opportunity to learn about yourself, learn about your people. But predominantly my role now is leading people both in Victoria Police, but also leading the community. So six and a half million Victorians trying to lead the ones that drive. We use our roads on a journey to make keep them safe. And, and that does come with some risk to yourself. And if you don't take the time to stop, breathe, and, and sort of reflect on, on where you are, you can find yourself pretty quickly being drawn into a pretty negative space. Yeah. Um, and, and I worry about the impact on my people, like, my major collision people, the high patrol people who go to this um, scenes of trauma every day and what that, you know, we have a saying in, in the policing world and it's predominantly when they're teaching people how to be detectives that every contact leaves a trace, you know, and, and the idea around that is that when you're at a scene where something's happened, um, you know, be it a burglary or an assault or, or a car accident, every contact, either human or mechanical or environmental, leaves a trace that you can sort of investigate to find out what caused. But as I've gone on, I've thought about, <clears throat> you know what, every contact that we have leaves a trace on us. And we're really conscious about what the vicarious trauma is, <clears throat> excuse me, how that actually the, 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 little, the little thing that you go to today in isolation might not be a big deal, but you go to enough of them, um, it, it runs the potential of, of leaving a really bad impact. And so how you develop your resilience, how you recognise the trauma in, in yourself and your your, your um, work colleagues or the community or people you deal with or your partners at home, which is an un, often an unrecognised um, transference of trauma to, yes. um, to those that you, you're nearest and dearest. Um, but you can't focus on it completely, otherwise it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy um, and you've got to be really careful about that. But I sort of look on my journey of over 40 years of doing this and, I mean, I still bounce out of bed every morning. The alarm goes at five-something every morning and I bounce out of bed and go off to work again. And so I think, well, actually, I'm in a pretty good, just despite the fact that I've had some pretty low moments, um, I've been able to build up that resilience and still that love of, of serving the community and, and making a difference every day, which sounds pretty cheesy, but it's actually it's actually the truth. You know, I actually still think every day that I'm making a difference, and I think when you lose that, you're, that's when you're at risk. Yeah, I've got a couple of things I want to ask, but I was just thinking um, on that. On Friday, I went and attended the Quill Awards, uh -huh. which is, yeah, the journal. It was like the Victorian Logies for Journalists. Yeah, yeah. And I don't watch the news, but I'm producing – so I'm in the process at the moment of producing a podcast for the Dart Centre, which is the Dart Centre of Journalism and Trauma. It's a training organisation um, to help educate and advocate for journalists and media personnel that are reporting on crisis, how mm. to do it compassionately for, for one, but also how to protect themselves in that environment. And Erin Cotter-Smith is the CEO of that company and she took me to the event and, I, and she suffers vicarious trauma through 15 years, predominantly through 15 years of researching the first responders who attended 9-11. She's never been to 9-11, but she suffers vicarious trauma through her research and she said she can smell the smell of what it smells like there. She lives the stories through other people. 
And five minutes into the event, I leaned over to Erin. They were showing clips of some of the news. And I leaned over to Erin and I said, it really to me is no wonder that you suffer vicarious trauma because the feelings in my body being exposed to the stories and the pictures and the music to these clips, I can feel it. And it's something I'm very conscious on because mm -hmm. you're well aware of the conversations I have on this show and I do them four times a week. Yeah. And it's funny because I go, oh, yeah, but I'm just having conversations. But I'm also, I do keep myself very aware that, yeah, first responders go to work and think they're okay. And, you know, like, so I do watch myself in that process as oh, well. Yeah, and I'm glad to hear that because it's often the unintended consequence or the thing you don't think of. So we know you know, fire, police, AMBOs, SES, people who go to the, it's a sort of a bit you know what you're signing up for. Now, that doesn't protect you fully from years of exposure to horror or a one-off event that might be horrific. But it's the people, and, you know, I saw um, uh, Lana Murphy won a quill for, for reporting, you know, on, on some road trauma stuff, which is great. We do a lot of work with her. And I often wonder the, one, the, the journos that do stay, um, in that space for a long time, what the effect is. And also you, you watch what's going on in Ukraine at the moment and some of the unbelievably gutsy reporting that's going on there from, from people who have immersed themselves into that horrible, unimaginable trauma. And, and I really hope that, um, that the networks and, the, and the, the publications that are sending those people there have thought about exactly that point you raised about that, who's looking after, like it's all right, who's looking after the responders, but who's looking after those who report on it as well? Because, um, you know, you can't see what's inside someone in here. They might be the duck on the pond, you know, just going along and everything looks all right. But in my experience, and it's just my experience and observation over a number of years, those people, when they fall, fall further and quicker than anyone else. Yes. It, it is a real concern. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that that work's being undertaken. Yeah, and this is this this next point will lead into the other question I wanted to ask you. But um, now I've bloody forgotten it, Glenn. <laughs> That's what I do. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's 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 you know I deal with it a different way to everyone else. You know, like. I deal with things now as, as sort of the, at my level differently because I see a whole range of trauma without going to it. Mm. But still occasionally you go to that event or you talk to someone and it triggers a memory from, from 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I've been involved in some really significant things that I'd forgotten about, I thought, but you actually never forget about it because it's always there under the surface. Yes, yep. What I was going to say, they made comment um, after the Quill Awards group that I was speaking to that this year or the, this past year, never in the history of journalism have journalists and reporters been as hated. The media is more hated now. They've always been often, you know, classed as a bit of a pest, but they're hated. But when I sat and, and heard some of the people getting awards, you know, I think it's Michael Warner, forgive me if I'm wrong because I don't watch the news. <laughs> Michael Warner got, an, got the golden quill, I believe, and that was for exposing the systemic racism in the AFL. Yeah. And that was, for me, that was a moment where I went, hang on, these guys aren't just writing stories. That changed. 
history. That changed a massive organisation. That changed the way people had to behave. And so, you know, journalists are actually doing really important work. They're not just going to get the cheap shots. They're not just the paparazzi pests. But, but that does happen, and it's like any industry where you only need one negative experience or one poor example of journalism or, you know, or one um, really, you know. And there are some organisations within the journalistic world that are less have less integrity than others. Yeah. Um, but it's like policing, you know. Everyone has probably um, some good experiences, but you only need one negative experience, or and we've suffered some... Terrible, um, you know, as the, as the chief commissioner calls them, own goals over the last few years in Victoria Police, and and you know, you look at the lawyer X stuff and some of the stuff we were forced to do during COVID that we didn't really, none of us really signed up to close borders or to be involved in those large, really violent, um, and um, you know, the violence that we saw in some of those demonstrations in October last year was really confronting. Um, and that has an impact on all of us. Like whether you're involved or not, when your the reputation of your organisation is is um, held to public account, and we're a public service organisation, so we absolutely need to be held to account. But like everyone who's a member of, of an organisation like Victoria Police, like we've got seventeen thousand sworn members and about five thousand public servants, so twenty two thousand people. When there's a negative story splashed on the front page of the papers or the lead on the on the news, whether you're involved in that particular issue or not, you do feel the the impact of that. And I, I can only imagine, you know, um, Mick Warner writing that story and exposing some of the issues within the AFL. Like he works in the AFL industry as a journalist, so the courage to do that is quite um, quite uh, immense, I think, and also. It's around the courage all of us need to sort of not be a bystander or walk past something. And, it, you know, we, we went through an issue a number of years ago now where we had exposed within our organisation um, some really significant um, pieces of um, inappropriate behaviour, sexual harassment and criminal criminality over a number of years towards um, our female staff, which was a great... Shame, but we had the courage whenever former chief commissioners had the courage to put our hand up and say, hey, enough, we're going to have a review by the Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission. We're going to take on board those recommendations. We're going to do something. We're going to change. We're going to um, get ahead of the pack. And I remember at the time, colleagues from interstate talking to them going, what have you done? You know, you've opened this Pandora's box. Of, of, and I go, yeah, because it needed to be open. Um, so the courage to sometimes the courage to do things, even when you know it's going to be really unpalatable or have some downstream impacts, they're the people I really um, admire. And, and I, I just go back to that part about Ukraine and some of the reporting we're seeing, particularly from female journos. There's a couple of female journos who are embedded in cities there, and I'm just thinking, wow, that is really, really gutsy. Yeah, yeah, it really is. When I was just thinking, what do you feel in terms of the impact, and maybe you don't notice it now or maybe you do, but of putting on that uniform that you're in right now, like that armour that immediately changes the way that you connect and react and and are viewed by people. Yeah, and I mean, I often talk to our people about um, the uniform um, is an important symbol but it's not your identity. So I can 
get changed now, walk out here into the middle of Melbourne and walk down the street and no one would look at me sideways. But if I walk down the street wearing this uniform, everyone's looking at, oh, what's a senior police person doing walking down the middle of the street? And you'd get some comments from people, some questions from people. Um, but it, it does have an impact. But overwhelmingly still for me, it's one of pride. Um, like I'm really proud every day to put the uniform on. I've done the majority, the large majority of my um, service in, in uniform in different roles. Um, but for me, it's because my family's so invested as well. So like my, my, um, my son's a member of Victoria Police um, and my daughter's a, a public servant of Victoria Police, my brother and my sister, um, niece, nephew, sister and two sisters and all my daughter. Oh, wow. Is it my daughter-in-law is a sergeant of police, as is my son. So for me, it's it's more than just what I put on and I represent. It's it's part of what I'm really proud of my family's commitment to helping community service in Victoria. But when we all get together, the rule is, you know, you might have five minutes of talking about work and how everyone's going, but after that, um, we're there as a family. We're not there as members of Victoria Police. So that differentiation is really important. You can't be you can't be defined by your. No one should be defined by their occupation. Um, you know, um, politicians. Everyone needs to be able to just walk away and just go and sit in the pub and have a palm or a pot if they want to, and just be, yeah. be sort of left alone and just be the human individual rather than than the whatever occupation, professional vocation you have. But but I never shy away from the fact that when people say, oh, "What do you do for a living?" They don't know. Um, Oh, I'm, I'm a member of Victoria Police and I'm really proud to say it. Yeah. And I think the day that you, you stop, I mean, you choose. Sometimes if I was at a if I was at a social function with a group of outlaw motorcycle bikies, I perhaps wouldn't be there. <laughs> <laughs> but I probably wouldn't be at the function in the first place. But because I have a bit, I'm in the media a bit, um, so people sort of do know who you are. And, you know, that's not ideal. I'd rather just be Joe Public when I'm going to the footy and, you know, um, Screaming like a lunatic, hoping Collingwood aren't crucified by the umpires yet again, as happens every week. But, um, but you know, like you realise that with service comes responsibility. But it's a responsibility that I'm really proud to do every day. Yeah, I love to hear that. It, it interests me so much because I often talk about the armour of first responders that we put on in terms of, you you know, you need the ability to suppress natural reactions to trauma. But and I think that, that then you have this physical armour. And so when you logged on and you're in full uniform, mm. I felt a shift in me ever so subtle, but it interests me, right? I, I was like, oh, isn't that interesting? So throughout this conversation, I'm in my mind, I'm bouncing back and forth thinking, I wonder if this conversation would be identical if you were in casual clothes. I wonder, even though I don't view you any different, but because I felt something when I saw the uniform, I wonder what that tiny little bit of bias, what changes inside what I will ask or or how, you know, how likely I am to open certain doors. It's really interesting and I think in the general public, when you walk down the street, people relate to you very differently. Yeah, yeah, they do. I agree and that's a negative and a positive because I think the symbolism of, you know, we are, We've been around as an organisation since 1853. Um, we've, you know, we've sort of been um, that public-facing, um, identifiable by the uniform as every police service is. As the, you know, everyone feels comfortable 
if you're at a scene where there's an accident or someone's ill and the ambos turn up, right, oh, here's the ambulance, they jump out and they're in uniform. Uniforms and symbols are really important because it gives the public that reassurance. It doesn't matter when, whatever it is, that someone turns up and they're looking for someone to take charge, they're looking for reassurance, they're looking for that feeling of, oh, okay, whatever the drama is, there's someone here now who hopefully will be more part of the solution than the problem and, and not add to it. Um, but it, it is, it's a really interesting question and it's something that I really impress. You know, I hold um, all of my people wherever I work to a standard around their uniform, their appearance, um, because you get into a taxi, um, right, and, and you can generally, it's, I think, you know, get the taxi Uber argument, well, Ubers are always so clean and the drivers are all so polite, but you can tell if you get in a taxi, as soon as you get in, what sort of ride you're going to have generally by the appearance of the cab, the appearance of the driver um, and their demeanour, and it's the same. Is it going to be an enjoyable experience or is this going to be 17 kilometres of hell and I can't wait to get out of the cab? <laughs> um, so it's the same. I can always tell when I walk into a police station, wherever it is, within the first two minutes, I can tell what the leadership's like, what the staff are like, what the morale's like by the appearance. If it's, is it clean? Is it tidy? Is it functional? Do the people look presented? Are they proud of what they've got on? Are they proud of the uniform? And, and uh, I mean, you know, that's you look at sporting clubs who always insist the good ones on how their players appear, how they how they conduct themselves. Uh, I remember it was a World Soccer Cup a few, kind of the last one or the one before, where everyone was so taken by the Japanese team at the end of every game, they would sweep up. These are the top professionals in the biggest sporting event in the world. They would sweep up the rooms, they would tidy up, they would leave a sign on the whiteboard, thank you so much for hosting us. And it just went towards that mindset of, um, of you are what, what people see. Um, and nothing annoys me more when I see um, police people, you know, either um, in an office or out on the road and they're slovenly or, you know, um, they're not paying attention um, because it is very much about that respect and that and that confidence that the public have when they see you doing the job. And it's the same in any organisation, I think. Yeah. Did you always want to be a cop? Um, I probably did. So I joined when I was 16. Like I'm from the country, Victoria. <laughs> I've been to Melbourne about four times in my life. And um, and they, they used to offer this process where um, you could do year 12 with the police cadets. It was like a police cadet scheme. Um, so I came down from, from Horsham in West Victoria and um, I actually stayed uh, at a building I can see from my office now, which is really weird that I'm going to sort of end my career. Where well, you started. It's sort of the old uh, the Lion King circle of life sort of thing, you know. Um, not that I'm, I'm, I'm like uh, Simba or anything, but, um, you know, <laughs> like, so I came down and did, it was unbelievable when I was 16 and a half. So I was doing year 12 as well as doing all the police stuff, the fitness stuff. So it wasn't unusual to, in the morning, sort of get up and, and run from um, Spencer Street and Savoy Plaza down to the tan, do a tan um, or double tan, then over to um, where um, the Tongan Putty Club is now that used to be the, the state, the, the swimming pool, and you'd do you know, life-saving and all that, then get changed, run back, and then sit through an economics lecture or a politics <laughs> lecture. And it was pretty full on, but you didn't know any different. It was yeah. just the best time I, I, um, I met some really um, close friends that I still have to this day. Um, and, and I sort of always thought, wow, this is great. I'm so privileged and lucky because a lot of people applied and I'd always 
yeah, I'd had that view of, of wanting to join the police. I don't know why. I can't remember if there was a particular incident or something happened. I'd always um, had that. And I was, you know, my parents were really, um, so like my dad was president of the junior footy club and the basketball association. That, that sort of um, notion of community service was really strong in our family. So I, I wonder if that sort of um, played through. But, um, yeah, it's, it, so that was in... 1980, I came down to um, to Melbourne and, um, yeah, I've just loved it ever since. Went to the academy at Glen Waverley the next year and graduated in December 81 and then I've just had this really, um, you know, it hasn't been easy. There's been some ups and downs. I've had some really low points um, uh, that are really difficult and I still sometimes have some issues with some of those, with the, the shooting I was involved in and, and, and um some men recently sort of managing through the horrible bushfires which all occurred in my region uh, and then the eastern freeway tragedy which uh, occurred in you know um, in my region in eastern region and and losing those four people <clears throat> you know which is just something I'll never ever forget and and you talk about your friend at the quill awards and then smell it you know feeling and and, and I'll never forget the sounds the sights and the enormity of that scene, that sun that will stay with me forever. Um, you know, and it's its something you sort of reflect on. And for me, um, you know, because my, my, I've got a lot of family in the job as well, so you just think, you know, gee whiz, you know, you, you try not to, if you think about that stuff too much, you will, you will suffer real harm, but it, it's something you can't let go of and, it's almost that feeling, and it took me a while to get over it. This feeling of, um, this feeling of, of uh, it's my fault, uh, or, or, or I could have done more, or, or something like that, which I know is is, is silly, but um, you do really feel you, you feel that responsibility of leadership that that comes with that, and yeah, that's something that I still struggle with a bit, to be honest. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, speak when I speak to I can't remember who I was speaking to recently and uh it was another guest of mine who spoke of they had a sister with cancer and they were the older sister and how they carried for so many years being well it was their fault and it, you know it's it's so interesting how we it, something gets embedded into our mind and it's quite relentless in terms of working through that, and even when we know on some level the reality of it. Yeah. Um, when did, what was your first, maybe your first confronting or the first that you were maybe conscious of realising was a really confronting event? Oh, so um, I remember I was a really a junior constable working and for 18 months I worked in the city directing traffic and um, I remember being on foot patrol one day, walking down Little Collins Street, and and there was a hubbub at a at a bank um, just near Swanson Street, and sort of say poke your nose over, and there was a guy in there trying to hold the bank up with a bomb, um, which what he said was a bomb. So I had like I was nineteen and a half, and I had two junior constables with me, you know, like not who, who were who were older than me in age, but I'd been in the job longer than them. So you've got to take charge, and you, you sort of. So I went in and started talking to this guy and um, evacuated the bank and did all that sort of stuff and then um, sort of worked through it all and and um, 
he, in the end, he gave up and it was a fake bomb and he, he was making an extortion attempt. But he, and I thought later on, that was the stupidest thing that I've ever, like, but at nine and a half, I didn't know, I didn't know anything what I was doing, you know, <laughs> like seriously. But yeah, yeah, over the, the, um, the 40 years since, you, you know, often I've thought that was really dumb, you know, and, I remember being in the city years later with my wife and two kids and they were sort of early teenagers and we're walking down a little Collins Street and I got to, and, I, and the bank's gone now, but I said to my wife, well, that's where um, the bank was because she, we were together, we weren't married, but she saw the sort of harm I went through after that. I had a few issues. And I was telling my kids about it and my son's just looking at me going, so you went in there to talk to a guy with a bomb? And I went, yeah. And he goes, what, are you an idiot? <laughs> <laughs> Why would you do that? Um, and that's sort of and yeah, oh, that's a really good question. Why would you do that? I don't know. But um, but it's just that you think, oh well, um, it goes back to what we we're talking about earlier. People, the public were around, seeing all these people come running out of the bank, carrying on. They go, oh great, there's the police. They, they're going to do something. So you sort of feel that need to do something. Um, so I did, and and that was really. Um, you know, the first time I really had to reflect on, um, wow, what what that would that could have been really uh, enormously bad. Um, but you know, if you're worried about that every time you went and did something, um, you, you, it's time to re- readdress what you're doing, isn't it? Because you can't go into everything thinking, oh, this is going to be terrible. Yeah. Um, but it was really weird. The the, the actual uh, event and the incident itself sort of yeah happened and took about an hour and um and that but it was the sort of um days and weeks and a few months after you when you're sort of sitting there just on your own thinking about geez that could have gone pear shaped did it did it rob you of a bit of confidence in terms of shit Mm. what decisions am i going to make when confronted with things and are they going to be the wrong ones it's it's great question i it actually did i went through a bit of a flat um period in my like really fledgling career after that where I I just sort of did the bare minimum and I didn't seek out to do um, anything extra or or go on and, and I was quite happy I got in because normally you'd stay at places like that um, for six, 12 months and then go, you know, try and get to a police station and go on, which is what I did eventually. But I, I just stayed there and, I, and then I started doing a bit more um, in the office type work and rather than going out on the road and if they said, oh, we need someone to work in the office um, the, on this weekend um, to man the phones and, and do the front of, yeah, I'll do it, you know. Um, and it wasn't until one of my supervisors said to me, I'm going, what are you doing? Like, you know, like, <laughs> um, and I go, oh, I don't know, like I'm, I'm not enough 20 years old, I don't know anything what I do really. Um, but it's, it's, it did rob me a bit, but I didn't know it at the time. Um, and I think, you know, you talk about, um, you know, your your podcast, Rolling With The Punches. Well, I wasn't rolling with them. I was just getting out. I was just avoiding them. I was just mm. not even putting my chin up to get to even get punched. This is the interesting thing that I find is when we're in the middle of stuff, mm. doesn't matter how self-aware we are, sometimes we aren't aware that we're in the middle of the stuff. And it's the most frustrating thing. And I think that, you know, when people talk about therapy and I don't know if it's just my world, I think we're 
well past it being a taboo topic, but maybe that's just because I spend every day talking about it. But, um, you know, I, I remember times where I've gone to therapy and then continued to go uh, well after feeling fine with life but going, shit, I'm learning a lot about this person that I am. Like I learn a lot more about me when I'm not dealing with chaos and big emotions and I'm just kind of observing me in the middle of life. Mm. And I think that, yeah, like this is the tough thing about protecting people like yourselves where, like I alluded to before, you're a, you are trained as part of the job to suppress natural emotions that doesn't come with an on-off switch. You don't flick that off as you take your boots off at the end of the day and go, oh, all the feelings, back you come. Yeah. No, it's got to be organic. It's just got to happen naturally, I think. And it's also I think we can fall for the trap because I agree with you. We're well past the idea of um, putting your hand up and, you know, are you, you know, are you okay, Dave, which is a great issue. But my view is, and I say it almost, are you okay, Dave, every day? Yeah. It's not one day where we have an event, you know, and we'll have a morning tea and we'll all put, you know, sit around and sing Kumbaya and talk about our feelings <laughs> every day. But on the flip side, we can also fall for the trap of overanalyzing everything. Yes. Sometimes stuff happens uh, and it's how you deal with stuff happens in a business-as-usual format, building your inbuilt resilience. Um, that's, I think, where you truly learn and develop and grow where um, because you talked about before putting the suit of armour on and the suit of armour and building it up and having multiple layers is great for avoiding things being thrown at you from the outside. But what people don't consider, in my opinion, is it stops things getting out from the inside as well. Oh, yeah. So if you've got that big, thick suit of armour on, suit of iron, that, yeah, great, people are throwing rocks at you and it's bouncing off and all good, but what's it doing to you internally? What's it stopped getting out? Um, that naturally oozes out and you might do it through going through for a run. You might do it for taking the dogs for a walk. You might play golf. You might have a few beers with friends. Everyone's different, but armour can be, it's a double-edged sword. It can be a really useful thing, but it can also be, I think, an inhibitor to the release of all that drama and stress and makes you build up to the point where you do need an intervention um, well, I'd, I'd much rather go along and, and as you say, roll the punch, just, just let it go, let it happen organically and don't overanalyze everything because you've built up an operating system within yourself that enables you to function at a high level. Yeah. Do you think that it's, I'm interested in this whole your entire family being part of the policing community. <laughs> Do you think that that, what are the, what are the, benefits and what are the challenges with that like do you because I know that a lot of first responder families don't understand their partners or they may feel they don't understand so first responders that have partners that are not like the amount of times I've had several emails from listeners saying thanks so much I have first responders in my family and I now I understand them better yeah do you think or does it create an environment where you might all just be projecting on each other and, and wearing your armour together or dismissing things? Or It's a real risk. It, it, can be, it can be a great benefit in times of great need and it certainly has been for our family on occasions, but it can be a real risk that you, you let it define your individual or family unit as that 
policing family or fire family. I mean, look, fire, the fireys are, you know, there's a lot of generational fireys. Um, um, there's a lot of generational police, multi-generational police. Yeah. But you need to strike a real balance. <clears throat> it's like um, having that club in your in your golf bag that you only pull out on certain occasions. You don't use it on every hole. Um, <laughs> you just pull it out when you need it um, and you use it to your advantage. Um, you shouldn't shy away from it because it is your occupation, your profession, regardless of what it is, is part of your identity. And if you have multi-layers of a family within a certain profession, it will always be part of your identity, but it can't be the defining factor of your identity. Um, so we all go out to dinner at a restaurant and carry on and have a great time and we're not sitting there in uniform having a glass of Pinot uh, Noir. We're just a family unit having a good time and a, and a meal and having a few laughs and um, and that's what it can be. So, But it is really important because there is that, intrinsic piece that you do know or you can it's probably more the recognition and looking for the signs of, of what what actually is a potential issue um rather than than worrying about it all the time but <clears throat> excuse me i can tell if one of my um if one of my siblings or one of my um family members are having a bit of a rough trot um because and that's the advantage of it i suppose yeah it's it- you are right. Like it's interesting when you, when we open up and we talk and um, I guess get an understanding of our own coping mechanisms, it mm. does make it easier to see that in other people. And I've noticed over more recent, well, I guess the last year especially, that I will feel intuitively around someone that I barely know and I'll get a fe- get a sense by their behaviour and be like, "Hey, is old mate okay? I feel like they're having because you see the mannerisms that you never that I never would have seen before." But I'm like, "Oh yeah, I know when I do that. I know when I when my body language looks and feels like that. Um, what that means, I might just check in." <laughs> yeah, and that's again, it's it's a sign, but it's and then you've got to make the decision: Do I? Do I intervene and say something out of the goodness of my heart? Um, and, and you know, like I've, you know, I've had quite a few members under my command who who've taken their own lives. Um, and you sort of always go to that. She was, what did we miss? How did we? Did we miss something? Did we not? Was this completely unseen? Um, how, how did we possibly do it? And you've got to walk that line between. Um, Asking that person and then making the run the risk of the really no, of course I'm all right, you know, like yeah. that sort of reaction. Uh, but yeah, I would rather do that twenty times and have yeah, 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 I'm all right, everything's fine, than not do it and and then regret it because yeah. um, you know life's too short for regret. So you should. It's that it's it's unteachable. There's no um, there's no metric or there's no um, rule book. Um, if this happens, do that. It's part of that. Um, I suppose you, as you develop and you mature over the years, and if you're in a leader, the leadership position, what your experiences are, and how you've sort of got to make that value judgment in yourself to do something or to do not. I, I always favour to do something, yeah. um, and uh, you know, if you get it wrong, well, ask for forgiveness. 
rather than not do something yeah. and then work it later on. What does it feel like to to recognise or reflect on the fact that you're in an industry that has such a high rate of mental health and suicide, both mm. as, I guess, the risk on yourself and your loved ones, but also all of your colleagues. What does that feel like? Yeah, so we do, we do have, um, you know, high rates of mental health uh, illness and absence. Um, we've made some real strides with um, with protection and prevention, and, and fortunately, you know, we... we um, the industry sort of, you know, it's really horrible that there should even be an industry standard or measure on, on people taking their lives. Um, but, but we, you know, and so one's too many, you know, it doesn't matter where you sit. Um, but it's a, as a leadership thing, it's the number one thing we talk about at every meeting, every structure is um, people, safety and culture. So it's the number one agenda item on every meeting. It's something that you can't just pay lip service and say, oh, it's important because it's the number one agenda item on all of our meetings. You've actually got to be active. You've got to be authentic in your leadership and you've actually got to show genuine empathy for your people. And we get a lot of criticism um, as an organisation and as leadership groups from people who leave the organisation or who, who exit through ill health. That, you know, and, and that is a really difficult thing because sometimes you can do as much as you possibly can and there's still going to be a negative outcome. People are going to suffer harm. They're going to retire ill health. They're going to have some issues. Um, but it, 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 it is, as from a leadership perspective, it's probably the number one thing that worries me, that keeps me up at night. I mean, you have the business part. And in my current role, it's around road safety, and that's really impactful. But the, your people and, and protecting them and looking after them and making enabling them hopefully to be the best person they can be when they're at work and when they're not um, is, is the number one thing that, that I, I drive through my leadership teams. And it's easier said than done because you've got to exhibit it yourself. Um, you've got to lead, you know, so I talk about the three levels of leadership, that strategic part, you know, with no matter what industry, and you've got strategic, you've got your internal policies, you might have legislation, you might have, you know, relationship with partners and memorandums, service level agreements, whatever it is, you've got those those sort of black and white things that are intangible that you need to leave. You've got your tactical leadership. So depending on what the situation, you're leading an issue, you're leading a response to something, whatever it is. But the most important one, I think, is your personal leadership. What's your brand? When people say, um, oh, what do you know about Tiffany Cook as a leader? Or what, what would people say about you? Um, what would, what would, where the positives and negatives? What's your, your visibility? What's your credibility as an authentic leader? Are you someone that, that says all the right buzzwords and, you know, has, has focus groups and has all these sort of hype, but you actually don't live it and you don't exhibit it because people smell a fraud really easily. And the number one thing that'll bring you undone as a leader is your lack of authenticity. So that's what I try and um, I'm, I'm pretty simple, pretty pragmatic. I think um, I don't try and say and do things that I know I can't that are beyond my um, are beyond my capability. So I think that's the thing that I try and focus on because if you do that, um, you should be able to deliver um, safe and and really productive environments for your people to operate in. Mm. So four decades in the service, what do you look 
when you look back now and look where you are now, what are, are there? Is there anything you wish you knew earlier, or what are you pleased that you might have naturally known? What do you do to keep yourself well and mm. you know in the position you're in now? So I, I, I try and just. I mean, so mobile tech is a great advantage, you know, but we're all now wedded to our phones. <laughs> Um, so I wish I had known earlier that it's okay to leave the, leave, you know, or disable your emails or, or whatever. We've got to balance that connectivity. I think this is going to become, we're never going backwards. We're never going to be less technically connected than we are now. We're, it's only going to increase. Mm. Oh, I think that um, if I remember back to 40 years, like you went home and, um, you know, unless someone rang you on a landline, you know, you can, if you don't know what that is, Tiff, go to a museum and try and find one. <laughs> I remember uh, having one. Yeah, well, there were no mobiles. There were no, you, you, you re, it was a lot easier to disconnect. So I wish I could go back and remember what that was like. Oh, yeah. And, and I can't do that because of my role now. I get it. It's a 24 7, 365 gig. And I, I knew that. I, you know, you don't just go for a promotion not knowing that, what you're getting yourself into. But I'm really lucky to have um, a really good life coach at home. Uh, my wife, um, you know, we've been married for 37 years. What's your wife's name? Helen. Shout out uh, to Helen. Yeah, she's a star and um, she keeps me very grounded. Um, and, I mean, we got married when she was 22 and I was 21. So, you know, we didn't know anything about anything. Um, but I, I sort of remember that innocence back then um, and, and I wish probably 41 years later professionally that I could have just bottled that a bit and captured it and be able to just release it. Um, it's almost I feel like, um, um, you know, taking a video, that's another thing in a museum. We used to take videos and play on your video machine. Um, but, um, but I, you know, if you could have gone back and revisited that simpler time because it's not better, not worse, it was just different. Yeah. Um, and that I think we have lost a bit of innocence. Social media is a great tool, but it's probably, you know, it's an evil tool as well if you let it. And, and you know, you just see um, the harm that's done by social media um, when it's used for, for evil instead of good. Yeah. Um, and, I, I, you know, I don't know. I get great advantages out of social media, but I also see the difference. I wonder if if I go back, jump in, in the DeLorean time machine with Marty McFly and go back all those years, um, whether or not we'd be better off without social media, I don't know the answer to that. But it's here. It's like technology's not going away. So we've got to either embrace it or, or completely um, completely reject it. I don't think we'll be half in. Yeah. You know, I, I do think, and I'm an avid social media nut that uses it far too much, but I... I reckon if I was given the opportunity to make the decision of whether or not we had social media come into our lives, mm. I'd probably opt for no. I, I think that our ability to evolve at the level that our lifestyle and technology has is, it will, it will never be there and that's why we have mental health issues. We mm. Our minds are operating double what they ever had to, you know, we're thinking about seven things at once. So our mind is literally exercising on different things all of the time. And when you said, you know, 20, 20, 24, seven, yeah. like when do you get to, to switch off? Yeah, but you, you, well, you, you, you manage to switch off in between. And I remember um, 
I remember going to a, 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 a was at the MCJ before um, Coral Warnies when he took his 700th wicket and um, he got Andrew Strauss out and I was lucky enough to be there, but been to a breakfast that morning and and Kim Hughes, former Australian test captain, was one of the speakers and he used to talk when he was facing the West Indies for a bowl on a million mile an hour at, he, at his head trying to knock it off, that he switched in between deliveries, you know, it might be 20, 25, 30 seconds, he would completely switch off from what it, how he was batting, what he was doing, and then, you know, he would switch back on five seconds before the bowler started the runner because you had to because if you were just that, you'd get that tense and that wound up. So I, that really interested me. And so I, I sort of think I'll probably try and do that. I switch off when I can in between. It's like, I, you know, you just work is there ever present. It's, it's just this thing in the cloud that's always there. So the ability to hit, reach out and hit that pause button and let life go by and then when work, you just push, push play and throw yourself back into, into work until you push pause again and then step out. But once you step out, and I'm quite good at stepping out, um, the pause button gets and the play button gets pushed a lot. The, the, you know, the time in between isn't as what I'd like. Yeah. That ability to go, go to the gym, go have a swim, go out to the garden, go for dinner, walk the dogs, all those sort of things, simple life pleasures are really important. Um, you know, I love travel that no one's been able to do for the last couple of years. My wife and I travel a lot. And for us, we love that. Um, you know, we're going to be grandparents um, in a few weeks for the first time. So, I mean, that'll that'll change change the world, no doubt. Um, so it's those simple pleasures, those life pleasures, which I think in a round comes back to where we started around um, everyone enjoys those things. doesn't matter whether you're a member of the police force. You take it off, you would still enjoy those simple life pleasures. And to me, that's what keeps me grounded and keeps me going. I love that. I love it. It is so important. Well, I've adored speaking to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you carving out a bit of time in your busy world. Um, I, I normally ask people if they, they have anything they want people to follow, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing, you know. Do you do you have socials or anything? Follow the road rules. That's a really good <laughs> That's it, guys. Follow the road rules. Thank you well, so thank much, you. Glenn. Thanks, Tiff. Talk soon.